thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. The last week, we found Jesus once again at the hands of Pilate, and the crowd was roaring outside the palace where Pilate was staying in Jerusalem, the palace of Herod the Great, and he was staying there. Pilate just wanted to enjoy the festivities of Jerusalem. Normally, he lived about 70 miles away from Jerusalem at a place called Caesarea Maritima, a major harbor city on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a place where later Philip lived, and Paul visits him, and there is ministry in the gospel. What is now taking place in God's word is proclaimed there later on. But for now, Pilate has come near, and he's, as we learned last week, facing a political, politically da- disastrous situation because the people want the blood of an innocent man. They want the blood of Jesus. Pilate's tried three times to convince them to just have Jesus further beaten and then supposedly released, though Jesus was so badly beaten, it's difficult to imagine he would survive. And yet, as we read last week in God's Word, the the shouts of the crowd were continual. Crucify him, crucify him. So we pick up God's Word today. As Pilate's given in, as we'll talk about in a moment as Jesus begins to walk on the cross or walk with his cross to Calvary. So Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 26 today. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have not bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? Pilate had already seen one uprising in Jerusalem, and his political career, even his very life, were in jeopardy. He knows he may not survive another one, and he looks over at Jesus, standing there bloody and beaten from what's happened to him. Jesus is wearing the crown of thorns and the fine robe that Herod had put on him before he sent him back to Pilate. As his blood dries, it's almost certain that the robe would be stuck to him and almost impossible, very painful to remove it because Jesus' back has been torn open by his wounds. His body is hurting and is ravaged. He is in deep physical agony. But his soul was weighed down and the faith that he has come to complete the mission that he has willingly taken upon himself is weighing on him. The shadow of the cross has fallen squarely on Jesus in Gethsemane. The very religious leaders, the ones who were very religious, who should have known who he was and openly welcomed him as the Christ, hold to their own power and their own wants, so they have no room to hold on to Jesus. They don't want Jesus in their lives and they have no room for his kingdom. They have chosen their own kingdom. Jesus' own 12 have all but abandoned him. Peter flaming out in spectacular 
fashion, denying him three times. After all the beatings, after all the betrayals, after all the mockery, he's found innocent and yet condemned to death on a cross. It's the worst punishment in the Roman world. So terrible that the only way a Roman citizen could ever consider being hung on a cross was for desertion from Caesar's army. This punishment was reserved for those who Rome felt were beneath them. They didn't invent it. The Phoenicians came up with it. The Greeks had used it, but the Romans had perfected it. The cruelty, the humiliation, it was designed to produce maximum agony. To create such a spectacle that when the citizens the Romans had conquered saw someone crucified, it was so horrific that they would never consider stepping out of line. The innocent son of God watches as Barabbas is set free, though a murderer, though a man of great destruction. And while the centurions prepared Jesus to begin that long walk to the cross, they tied probably just the cross piece, the, the crossbar called the patibulum is what that was called. They tied Jesus' forearms to the cross. The horizontal beam is placed on his back, his back that has been torn open. He was whipped with what we call the cat and nine tails. If you're not familiar with that, there's no word to describe just how horrific the scene would have been. You see, the cat and nine tails had pieces of glass and metal and sheep bone and whatever they could find. It was a whip with nine different lengths and sometimes more than that. That was just the standard variation. There were lots of them. And so as they would whip, it would catch and then it would tear off flesh and tissue and muscle with it. Jesus was almost certainly physically in shock. The blood loss alone would have been catastrophic with all the skin and muscle and tissue that was gone. The fact that he was still alive was incredible. Because when the Romans did that, usually the idea we'd flog somebody and let them go was kind of a cruel joke because you didn't survive the flogging to begin with. Even with Pilate, he's just trying to get things done. Jesus very likely wouldn't have survived this, but yet God had a different plan. Jesus was physically as strong as anyone would have been. He was far from the effeminate pictures we've often seen placed in churches when we were kids. He was a carpenter's son, which means he spent much of his youth cutting stone and wood and digging in the arid climates. Jesus was a tough guy. And yet, though he was fully God, he was fully man, and he was suffering. So now he's walking and stumbling and falling with a large wooden beam tied tightly around his arms. And that beam, that patibulum I talked about, probably weighed somewhere between 80 and 130 pounds. And like all aspects of crucifixion, it was designed to inflict maximum pain and maximum humiliation. With Jesus' arms tied to the beam... He had no way to break his fall. Have you ever thought about that? So as it's tied, he can't catch himself. Now those of us that are adults, the older you get, when you fall, you fall. I may have mentioned, I play basketball sometimes with some guys in the morning, and I, I used to be a pretty good basketball player. Now I'm kind of a basketball myself. But, you know, the first time you have an old man or an old woman fall, and you kind of bounce, but not really. But after that, you just kind of lay there praying that you're still okay. Do you guys know what I mean? Yeah, and that's just, I tripped on something. He's already been beaten. He's been deprived of sleep. He's been mocked. He's been harassed. He's physically 
ravaged and devastated. Now they have him tied to this crossbeam. But it's the sin and the death and the darkness of all humanity that was weighing most heavily on Christ's back. As he tried to walk towards what we call Calvary. That's the Latin word, calvaria, that comes from the biblical word, cranion, from which we get the word cranium. Golgotha was the Aramaic understanding of that. And Golgotha was the place of the skull. And you can see on the picture up here, you guys see how it looks like a skull? I once showed this at a youth ministry event, and somebody said, I know that. That's from the Goonies where One-Eyed Willie lived. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, that kid's in ministry now, so I don't want to say too much. He's a great, he's a great, he's a great kid. But I was like, oh my gosh, no. But see, Jesus had to walk probably a half to three quarters, a little less than a mile. But he had to walk with this beam tied to him from where he was at Herod's palace. You can see there on the map down on the left of our photo to where they would have the stipe, the, the cross beam stayed there. And the Romans had this down to a science. As they humiliated you, they, they want you to walk along there. And the sin and death and darkness that weighed down on him, Pilate gives into those endless cries. Jesus is tied and sent on his way to Golgotha. And out comes Barabbas, watching as Jesus is walking away, thinking, as we talked about last week, that the cries for crucifixion were for him. He knew he deserved it. Yet he watches this man he doesn't know carrying the crossbeam that was meant for him away. If there was ever a picture of God's grace where a guilty man comes out and sees the only innocent man who's ever lived walking away with the punishment meant for him. Just like you and I. We deserve death. We deserve all that we encounter. And yet the sin and death and shame that were meant for us, Christ takes upon himself and begins his journey, his long walk to the cross. But Jesus simply can't move at the speed the centurions want him to move. He cannot do it. He's too weak physically. He's too weak emotionally. He's too weak spiritually. He's hurting with the weight of all sin and darkness for all people and all places and all time laid upon his back. But the centurions, they had places to be and they, they were good at what they did and they always tried to balance it between the chaos of the crowd and the spectacle to show the might of the Roman army. And so they wanted Jesus to get going. The Passover was going on. This was a chance for them to have a little fun as well and they didn't want the crowd to get out of control. So their job was to parade him along as efficiently as possible and get him out there because with the Passover coming, they had to get this done. They didn't want the crowd to get unruly. They didn't want to go too long but they wanted enough spectacle that people understood that saying you were a king when Caesar was the king would never be tolerated. But Jesus is falling down. He's falling. He can't do it. And they spot a man in the crowd named Simon. Simon was from a place called Cyrene in North Africa. There was a large Jewish settlement there. And he, like so many, had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover as a part of his faith. And as a historian, Luke lets us learn a little more about who Simon is. Because in Luke's time, as he writes and looks back at this and gathers all the evidence as a historian, he tells us that 
there is Simon, and we should know him because his sons are part of the early church. You know Simon. He's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. You know them. Simon's life was changed this day. As he came and saw Jesus, the one who claimed to be Messiah. He had no idea how that would have changed his life, how that would change his family. That's what the Word of God does. When Christ gets a hold of your life, it not only changes your life, it's meant to change the lives of those around you. Your relationships become life-giving conduits to other people. This picture here is from 1576, Christ Carrying the Cross. It is an Italian Renaissance work. I'm not going to try to say the nice man who painted its name for you. But you see there in that painting, it's beautiful. You see how Christ is carrying the cross, and yet Simon comes over to grab it. And he, you can see the face of Simon, how he's moved, how he's, he's trying to understand what he has now been pulled in to be a part of. The Roman term for that was conscripted. If he resisted, he would be killed on the spot. Remember, the spectacle matters. And so he comes. And they say, you. You're going to carry that. That's what happens. He will carry the crossbar, the patibulum. He's going to pick it up. I need two guys from the church. Can I have two guys come up here? I need two guys. Can two of you come up here? Guy, girl, doesn't matter. I need two people to come right up here for a minute. Just walk up, up here for me for a second. So you guys see over here, we have, this is the cross we use sometimes at Easter time. This is the finest cross Home Depot allows me to manufacture for you. So will you guys uh, take me and just pick this up off the ground? You don't have to hold up or anything. Just pick it up. How heavy is that? About 80 pounds, probably? Yeah? Would you want to carry that for almost a mile? If you were in shock, would you want to carry it at all? Yeah, Dave, you're stronger. So you, no. Okay, you guys put it back. That's fine. Thanks, guys. Thank I appreciate it. Thank, thanks to Lou and Dave for doing that. But yeah. Some people say, oh, we know it had to be the whole cross. It was most historical and archaeological information we found shows that the cross, the, the crossbar, that's a little small. It was probably more like a railroad tie. How many of you have ever moved those suckers around your your yeah? Yeah, the group. We don't dig a lot here in Ohio, right? Yeah. He's in shock. He's been deprived of sleep. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. He's, in, he's lost muscle, muscle, bone, and tissue. On his back where they've whipped him, they put this railroad tie, this large piece of wood. They tie it to him. He's falling on his face. He can't break his fall. And so they picked this other guy. I'm sure they looked in the crowd and found a big, strong-looking guy. They said, hey, come here. They took and unwrapped the ropes. And they placed it on top of Simon. They didn't necessarily tie it to him, but he had to carry that thing. All the way to Calvary. Can you imagine carrying this device of absolute torture? Following this man, you're seeing his woundedness. You're seeing his hurt. You don't even know what to do. 
And so Simon walks in Jesus' footsteps, following him towards Calvary. The crowds around them were shouting and jeering. Many of them from the same crowd who had gathered at Herod's palace, who the chief priests and the teachers, the, those Luke called the assembly, had stirred them up, stirred him up and said, crucify him. But not everyone was shouting. The women were there. And they were mourning. Perhaps some of them knew Jesus. Some of them may not have known him at all. It was proper culturally for them to weep and to mourn and to follow behind. That was a custom. That was expected. That was something that is done. If you go to this part of the world today, it still is done. If you go to other continents, to places like Africa, this is still a strong part of cultural respect for someone. But many of them likely knew Jesus. They knew who he was. We know that some of them were following behind. And they were mourning. And they were weeping over what was happening. But it was more than just cultural. It was more than just what was expected. In the moment, it was visceral. It was vulnerable. And in that moment, it was spiritually eternal. This moment is one where the direction towards the cross was set and the outcome, this spiritually charged moment, the undercurrents of heaven versus hell, the balance of power would be shifted forever. It was never in doubt, but you wonder what hell thought. You wonder how gleefully Satan looked on and thought, finally, everything I've been setting up since the garden and by that, we don't mean Gethsemane, of course, we mean Eden. Finally, it's all going to work out. But heaven had another plan. A plan that went far beyond what any of the hecklers or even what the mourners could comprehend in that moment. But Christ knew. And so he speaks to the women mourning as the soldiers angrily put the cross, the cross beam that they've torn off of his broken back and placed it on Simon. He turns to them and he offers an ominous and powerful statement. It's one of those spots in scripture we often race past and we shouldn't. So much of God's word is wrapped up in it. I find the older I get, the more I study God's word, how much when I was younger, I would race apart, past the most important parts to tie it all together. This moment sets the stage for all of redemption. What God has promised, what his people had prophesied and waited for is coming to pass. There is eternal significance for all humanity, for you and for me in our time. And what Jesus says in verse 28, look at that. Turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. First, let's recognize this is completely understandable. It's, it's okay that they're weeping for Jesus. He's not mad at them because they're weeping for him, but he wants them to see something more. I mean, he's the sinless, innocent son of God being sent to death. Even Pilate had said, hey, this guy doesn't deserve this. But he wants them to see something more. He's going to the cross not just because the voices of the crowd and the whims of the leaders have demanded that his blood be shed, he wants them to know that's not what's really 
happening here. See, we have the blessing of looking in hindsight like Luke does and seeing the rest of the story. Jesus comments to the women here, they're respectful and they're men out of kindness. He wants to draw them. He's trying to love them. He says, no, no, don't think of this just as what it is. There's something more going on here. And he's being loving and respectful to the women. He wants them to understand. He wants them to see this is all part of God's redemptive plan. This fulfills what has been said in the Old Testament. There's a bigger picture going on in this moment, and he draws them to it. He wants them to look at passages like Zechariah 10, 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Hosea 10, 8, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, follow us. Jesus turns. And he knows he's doing the will of his father. He's battling to strike a death blow to death. Not just physical death, but the spiritual death. We talked about in the book of Romans that you will die, die. Your soul, the death that is forever. He has come to put an end to it. Sin will begin to die at Calvary. And the effects of sin will linger on till Christ comes again. We know that in our world today. But he wants them to understand this eternal perspective. He knows bad things are happening in his world just as in our world this day. He has prayed and wept this week. If you want, read John chapter 17. Jesus weeps over what's happening. And yet he knows what he has come to do. That the scripture would be fulfilled. That's what he prays in John 17. And that's what he wants the women to see here. He prays in John 17 that even we would know and come to faith. Christ prays for us. If you read our Lenten devotional, one more thing with this. The fact that Jesus does this with the women is significant. In that culture, you know women were not well regarded. If you wanted to begin a movement to change the world, you would not involve the women as the people. The men run away and the women are following. The women come to the tomb. The women understand. Look at the story of Mary and Martha from just before this. Mary sits at his feet. For a rabbi to have a woman sit and learn and be his student would have been unthinkable in Jewish culture. But Jesus isn't looking at that. He's looking at an eternal perspective. In God's throne room, there are no men and women, no slave, nor free, nor Greek, nor Jew. There is only those who stand in Christ alone. That tells us that Luke, as a historian, is giving you the unvarnished truth. If you wanted to sell this in that world, you never would have put this in. Do you understand how important that is? He turns to the women. In his moment of agony, he says, no, I want you to understand this. He shows them love and respect. He says, I want you to understand what's happening. None of this is made up. And to write this that way would be cultural suicide. But this is about God's eternal word. And it was written for us today in our world. And we get it. We understand it. What Christ 
came to do was revolutionary and powerful. You think of these passages, he quotes Hosea 10.8, saying to the mountains, cover us and the hills fall on us. It's a tragic picture of what happened when God's people were carried off into captivity in the Old Testament. And yet again, 70 years later, as Jesus has told them, I tell you, this temple, not one stone will be left on top of the other. 70 AD, Jerusalem, the Romans burn it to the ground again and destroy it. And yet that wasn't the only thing Jesus was talking about. Not what was going to happen, not what would soon happen, but that eternal perspective. That eternal perspective is what he wants them to understand. That eternal perspective. That's what he prayed with in John 17. He taught with an eternal perspective. He prayed with an eternal perspective. It was a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And he inaugurates that kingdom at the cross. Jesus is reminding them to mourn because spiritual destruction is coming. Spiritual judgment is coming. Spiritual reckoning is coming for all people. All people from all times, from all tribes, from all tongues, from all places, from all face, will face God's judgment. Look at the words here from Revelation chapter 6. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll and being rolled up, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. And look what it says. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Friends, in our sin, none of us can stand. None of us can stand before God. None of us, not Pilate or the assembly who wanted to keep their piece of the pie in their earthly kingdoms, but yet all of us will have to give account before God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth, and it will be horrific and terrible for people who do not know Christ. Because when God looks at us on that day, he will not see us and our brokenness and our failures and our folly and everything we've done. He will see Christ. That's what's happening at the cross. That's what's happening. Imagine it. Christ says, don't think about what's just happening. Here he says to the women, he says, think about what's really happening. Don't weep for me. If you understood what was yet to come, you'd be weeping for all people. Because for those who don't know Christ, it would have been better if they were never here. Because they faced eternity without him. And that leads us to a great moment of reflection here in Lent. As we consider our own lives and our own hearts, as we make room for God in this season, we must ask ourselves, what matters to me in my heart? I asked you guys to reflect on the practical aspects of your lives a couple weeks. I want to ask you this day, what do you weep for in your life? The women were weeping for Christ. And he wants them to understand what they should really be weeping for. 
And I think with that eternal perspective, he says that to us as well. Jesus didn't tell the women to weep for their comfort, for their material wealth, and for their health, and for their vitality, all the things we pray for. Not that those are bad things, but even if we are given those gifts, what do we use them for? Jesus doesn't say weep for that. No, he tells them weep for those who don't know me, who don't see, who will not see what's happening. Because someday they're going to stand before God. We all will. Weep for those who don't know me. Perhaps that's why the last thing he says to his disciples, which is our call now, is the Great Commission. To go and to make disciples, to see lives changed by the gospel. Do you weep for yourself? Do we weep for the sin that we commit that hurts others, that hurts ourselves? Do we weep for those who will stand before the Father who do not know the Son as Savior? Jesus tells us that's who we should weep for. It's their salvation. It's their redemption. It's that eternal redemption. It's that spiritual kingdom that he's come to create. He says, don't you see what's happening? That's why you should weep. As the women cry, they watch as Simon is following behind Christ with the, the cross. Walking in his footsteps. Jesus' call to weep and to repent should lead us to action. Our prayer is in action. In Lent, are you praying for God to guide you? Are you repenting of your sin? Repentance is in action. Sharing our faith, being obedient, calling others in small ways just to say, hey, would you come to church with me? Well, I'm a Christian. Did you know that? If somebody says, I never would have guessed you're a Christian, that might be a bad thing. It might not, too. Sometimes people have weird ideas of what it means to be a Christian. But they should say, hey, you know what? You are really good. You're, you love people. You're kind to them. That's good. You want to hear that. If it's like, wow, are all Christians jerks like you? Then that's a problem. Jesus calls us to pray for those who don't know him. That's what he prayed in John 17. He says, look, I'm the center of all of this. And not about me, but pray for those who don't know what's happening. Think about everything we do here in this place, in this church. Think about all the events, all the activities on the back of your bulletin. Everything we're about here. Everything. If it doesn't bring others closer to Christ, to know him, to repent of their sins, to bear the cross and to follow behind Christ like Simon is now doing with Jesus, then what we're doing here is about us. And it's not about Christ. Christ tells us from beginning to end in his passion to his ascension, that it should be about salvation. It should be about the gospel. It should be the center of all we do because it's the center of all that Christ came to do and will come again to complete. And how do we do that? Everybody says, how? I don't, well, that's great, how? Personal connection with others. Taking time out of your busy life to love and to care for someone. Small, transactional, gospel activity. How are you? Can I pray for you? Would you like to come to my church? How's your relationship? And you go back again. 
how are you? And they're going to be like, what's wrong with you? And that's why we don't do it. Do we understand? Do we weep for what God weeps for? Do we weep because we want others to know God? That we think others need to know Him. God is calling all of us out of our comfort zone to put things on the line. Christians around the world are dying for their faith. And we're worried that someone might be uncomfortable if we invite them to church. Really? I can't do it all, guys, because when I do it, people go, oh, he's a pastor. He gets paid to do that. You don't think I would do this for free? If I had another job, I would. Maybe I should. You know why? Because whether I worked here or worked at the 7-Eleven, and that's fine if you work at 7-Eleven, oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven, my heart's still the same. You guys know Penn and Teller, magicians. They have a show now where people try to fool them. Have you seen it? Great show. They seem like really neat guys. They've been good friends and done this for so long. Penn Gillette is a very intelligent man. He's also an avowed atheist. But he's a kind, thoughtful man. I appreciate that. He said something powerful. I know it's long, but I want you to hear it. Here's what Penn Gillette says. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much more do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? To make them a follower, to share your faith. That's what that means. He says, yeah, people are going to be jerks about it, but if that's it, how much do you hate them that you let that stop you? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? This is from an atheist. I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point when I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Do you weep for those who don't know Christ? Do you see that there is a truck coming to run over their souls? Even though we're all rightly condemned for our sin, God's grace has been extended to you, though you and I don't deserve it. Do you see that as individual building blocks, we are God's church? This is not God's church. This is just a place. We are the church. And as the individual parts of the church, do our hearts break as the church of Jesus Christ for what? breaks God's heart. Because if it doesn't, if we don't have God's heart at all, we cannot expect him to bless us and bless our gathering, our church, unless our hearts belong to him. 
Perhaps that's a call for us as a church to do some soul searching. Maybe it's time for us to do a little weeping. A little repenting. To call ourselves back to what matters most. This week I want you to think about what matters most. What is the heart of God? To know and to love and to serve as Jesus Christ. To be like Simon and to walk in his footsteps and follow him to Calvary. To bear the cross to a world who needs it, who may be screaming against it even as you're walking along with it. Familiar words here, Galatians 2.20, should ring true for us as we seek to die to ourselves and to live unto Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Personal gospel relationships. Simple transactions of faith. Everyone says, how, how, how? That is how. Love someone. Share your faith. Invite them. Be there for them. Pray for them. Take time for them. It's sacrificial. This week as you pray, ask the Lord, am I bearing the cross of Christ to a dying world as if their lives depended on it? As if their souls depended on it? As if it was the most important thing in the world? Do I believe, live, and love like Jesus is the only thing that matters? What breaks our hearts? Is it about us or is it about Jesus? The church of Jesus Christ is about changed lives. It's about transformation. It's about people with broken hearts carrying the cross of Christ to a dying world. Start today and dedicate yourselves to follow Christ to Calvary. That our hearts would break just as his heart breaks for our world. Let's pray. Father, that in all things we would put you at the top of the list, that you would have the preeminence that we would understand what it means. What you went through was not just something for us to get a, a trip to heaven, but that it should transform the way we live here on earth. That we would make our own journey of faith, that the longest walk we would understand we ever make is from our head to our heart. Father, for anyone here who does not know you as Savior, if today you're talking to them, that they would be willing to lay down their lives before you, that they would just say, God, I need you. I give it all to you. I'm a sinner. I can't get it right myself. God, if anyone does that today, they would come and talk to me that I could begin to work with them with some of our elders. We want them to know Christ as Savior. But most of all, God, we don't want just them to know Christ as Savior. We want the whole world to know through us. We are the church we know there will come a day when all those without you will pray that the mountains would fall and cover them and it'll be too late. And that in whatever we do, whatever our job is, whatever our likes are, whatever our hobbies are, wherever you take us, that none of it is by accident, that you have put us in relationship with people, that even the, the, what we think is a chance connection is because you designed it. God, take us, transform us, and our hearts attune us that we see where you're at work, that we have the courage to say to other people, can I pray for you? 
What do you need? How can I love you? How can I serve you? Would our hearts break? Would we weep for what you do, God? Would that happen here for us as individuals, as parts of the church, and for our church as a whole, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.